Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tracy Bumgard and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Malawi prepares for general elections to be held next week and leaders of South Africa's main opposition party meet to discuss election performance. In economics news, China to increase tariffs on $60 billion worth of U.S. goods. And in sports news, Tyson Fury vows to become undisputed heavyweight champion. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. Violence has flared up in Sudan's capital Khartoum after the military council and opposition groups said they had agreed to a power structure for the country's transition following the ouster of President Omar al-Bashir last month. Heavy gunfire was heard late into the evening. The council says a military police officer has been killed and many protesters wounded. Local doctors say some were in a serious condition. The military council is accusing armed groups unhappy with progress toward a political deal of opening fire at protest sites. Protesters are ever say counter-revolutionaries linked to the former regime were inciting violence. Earlier, paramilitary forces patrolled the streets using tear gas and gunshots to disrupt protests, protesters blocking roads. Meanwhile, Sudan's public prosecutor has charged al-Bashir with incitement and involvement in the killing of protesters. The charges stem from an inquiry into the death of a doctor killed during protests that led to the end of al-Bashir's rule last month. The BBC's Will Ross reports. The statement from the chief prosecutor's office said the charges against Omar al-Bashir include one that's linked to the killing of a Sudanese doctor, Babikar Mohammed. In January, he was treating protesters in his home in Khartoum when police fired tear gas into the building. He's reported to have walked out with his hands in the air, then told the police he was a doctor and was instantly shot dead at close range. Some Sudanese will not believe that Mr. Bashir is really in trouble for such crimes until they see him in a court. Meanwhile, there are reports of a breakthrough after talks between the military council and the opposition position, but it's still not clear if they've agreed whether generals or civilians will lead a joint transitional body to run the country. South Africa's ruling ANC has announced seven of its eight premiers following last week's national and provincial elections. The party says it will announce its premier for the northwest province in due course as there are still unresolved party issues in the province. ANC Secretary-General Ace Mahashule announced the list of the premiers elect during a media briefing in Irene in Pretoria where the National Executive Committee members have been meeting. The ANC agreed on the following premier candidates. Eastern Cape, Oscar Maboyani, Free State, Sisin Tombela, Gauteng, David Makura, KwaZulu Natal, Sihle Zikalala, Limpopo, Stengli Matawate, Mpumalanga, Refilwe Mtsweni, Northern Cape, Zamani Sol. And we said Northwest, the premier candidate will be announced in due course following internal engagements. The Kenyan government has announced it will not extend the May 18th deadline for the mass registration of a unique citizen identifier number known as Huduma number. The aim, the government says, is to consolidate different identity cards and certificates already issued to citizens into a single source of truth regarding a Kenyan. Biometric details of citizens aged 6 and above are being captured in the registration drive. The exercise has been dogged by controversy with critics expressing concern that citizens' personal information would not be safe, especially because Kenya does not have a data protection law. And finally, Facebook has confirmed that a serious 
vulnerability in its WhatsApp messaging service allowed hackers to install spyware on the phones of users. Researchers say the software has been used to target human rights lawyers. The BBC's Dave Lee reports. WhatsApp told me it found the problem around 10 days ago and since then has been notifying human rights groups to warn of the danger as well as alerting US law enforcement. A flaw in the app meant attackers could implant surveillance software without the target needing to do anything. The spyware is believed to have been developed by the NSO Group, an Israeli security company known for creating ways to hack into the most popular devices and systems and selling those tools on to governments and intelligence agencies. And that's the news. It lands at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The first batch of ballot papers has arrived in Malawi's capital, Lilongwe, amid tight security detail ahead of the May 21st elections. The ballot papers were printed in India. At least 6.5 million Malawians are expected to vote for president, lawmakers and ward councillors. This will be the sixth time Malawians vote since 1994 when multi-party democracy was reinstituted. George Mango reports from Blantyre. Security was tight as ballots arrived from India in a chartered plane through Kamuzu International Airport in Lilongwe, Malawi. Observer mission teams, political party leaders, civil society and government officials witnessed the arrival of the ballots. Malawi's electoral authorities have since indicated that the second batch of ballots is due to arrive any day this week. Currently, the ballots are being kept at a warehouse at the Kamuzu International Airport in Lilongwe ahead of the delivery process slated for this weekend in all polling stations. The Electoral Commission has since called for joint efforts with political leaders, so polls are held in a peaceful manner. Jenny Ansar is the Malawi Electoral Commission chairperson. Elections are a competition which no one must with the expectation of losing. However, it remains a clear fact that only one person emerges winner at the end. The rest sometimes can get intense and muddy. I urge you to confine yourself to a civilized campaign. Malawians are tired of mudslinging and foul-mouthed extremely. For a change, they want this election to be ish-based, to champion their cause for a green campaign. Masses want the next government to deal with high levels of unemployment, shortage of drugs, nepotism and regionalism. Kingsley Piri thinks youth should vote for someone who would deal with increasing levels of corruption as well. This follows calls from international borders for Malawi to deal with the vice or else risk aid withdrawal. For such uh, development partners to withdraw their aid from Malawi, it's not even strange because the stories of corruption have been there. And uh, I'm even surprised to say some development partners are saying uh, we want to do to institute a commission of inquiry or this and that. No, we want them to come and maybe push or put the government at a corner so that government should come out to arrest the situation. This is sad development. If the development partners withdraws their aid from Malawi, that means that will have a big impact to us Malawians. Seven presidential candidates are competing. These are incumbent President Peter Mutarika of the Democratic Progressive Party, DPP, incumbent Vice President Saulo Chilima of the United Transformation Movement, UTM, Lazarus Chakwira of the Malay Congress Party, MCP. Others are John Tisi of the Umozi Party, Rubere Mulozi of the United Democratic Front, UDF, Peter Kuwani of Mbakuwaku Movement for Development, and the only independent presidential candidate, Reverend Howard Kalia. Political experts think the battle is among Mutarika, Chakwira, and Chilima based on promises they are making to the public. However, Jenny Asa, the Malawi Electoral Commission chairperson, calls on candidates to adhere to the Electoral Code of Conduct 
to avoid violence. The Commission, in the consultation with all political parties and electoral stakeholders, developed a code of conduct for candidates and political parties during elections. This code of conduct provides guidelines of how to conduct campaigns and some of the things which candidates or their followers should not do. Former President Joyce Banda, likewise former Vice Presidents Kombo Kachali and Kasim Chilumpa, pulled out and endorsed Jaquera of the Malay Congress Party MCP. Polls for this year are being described as vital as they will determine the rebirth of multi-party democracy embraced in 1993. At that time, thousands of Malawians voted out the leadership of first President Hastings Kamuzubanda in both a referendum and general elections. George Mohango, Channel Africa Blantyre. Going back in time to today in 1991, Winnie Nomzamo Mandela, the then wife of Nelson Mandela, was sentenced to six years in jail by a Johannesburg court for her involvement in the kidnapping and beating of four youth suspected of being police informers. That's Today in History, 1991. Musi Maimani will remain the leader of South Africa's opposition, the Democratic Alliance. That's the word from the party's Federal Executive Committee. The FedEx held a meeting in Bruma, east of Johannesburg, on Monday. There had been speculation about Maimani's future after the party lost electoral support during the recent elections. Some party members openly called on social media for Maimani to be removed, saying he should take responsibility for the decline in support. Noma Bolani reports. The Democratic Alliance lost just under 2% of support of the national votes. It also lost support in provinces, even being removed as the official opposition in Bumalanga and in Guazulu-Natal. This prompted a flurry of social media comments calling for DA leader Musi Maimani to fall on his sword. But on Monday, the highest decision-making body of the party, the Federal Executive Committee, stood with Maimani, saying they fully support him. Federal Chairperson Ethel Trollope says the meeting was not a referendum on Maimani's leadership. Uh, the leadership of the party at both national and provincial level were unambiguous today in our support for Mr. Maimani, who has led the DA with exemption since 2015, where he was elected at the Nelson Mandela Bay Congress. And then in 2018, he was elected unopposed. He led this campaign from the front, and every single person in the federal executive, bar none, commended him for this leadership. Trollope says they conducted a post-mortem of the elections to see where exactly they might have gone wrong as a party. He acknowledges the decline in support but says the blame must be taken by all those who were campaigning for the party. Trollope says the DA now needs to go back to the drawing board to figure out how to regain the lost support for the local government elections in 2021. Where the losses occurred, we will work on regaining the trust of those people as we head into the 2021 local government elections. This morning, the Western Cape provincial leader, Bongi Matigizela, stated that we must be on the ground working with the people of South Africa and always keep them informed. And our leadership from the top to the branches on the ground will do exactly that over the next few weeks and months heading into the 2021 election. Federal Council Chair James Self says he'll review how they structured the party campaigning and candidate selection in order to be more attractive to the electorates for the local government elections. He says they want to speak to a wider constituency than the one they reached in last week's election. What we want to do in this review is to see whether uh, after that period those systems are still appropriate for the much bigger party that we are at the moment to see whether they are appropriate for a different constituency from the constituency that we had in 2004. So really we will be reviewing all our processes, all our structures, uh, with a view to uh, ensuring that we can be the very, very best service to the voters of South Africa. Meanwhile, the FedEx says the best way to celebrate their victory in the Western Cape is to concentrate on ensuring service delivery and a commitment to building a more inclusive economy. I'm Norma Bolani in Johannesburg.
South Africa's Inkata Freedom Party says the outcome of the general elections in which the party reclaimed its position as the official opposition in the KwaZulu-Natal province and also improved its seats in parliament is an indication that the party is still a force to be reckoned with. From 10 seats in parliament after the 2014 general elections, the party now has 14 seats. In KwaZulu-Natal, the party grew from 9 to 13 seats, Vusima Kosini reports. The IFP is in a celebratory mood after its improved performance in last week's general elections. During 2014 general elections, the party lost the position of an official opposition in the province to the DA. However, it has now reclaimed its place. Party leader Prince Mangosu Dubteles explains. This victory has strengthened our voice in the national governance of South Africa. Our greatest victory, however, is undoubtedly here in the province of KwaZulu-Natal. Despite the massive and well-founded campaigns waged by our opponents, the IFP has overtaken the Democratic Alliance to become once again the official opposition in KwaZulu-Natal. The electoral result has shown the wisdom of our party in approaching a leadership transition with prudence and judiciousness, not hurrying to the end result, but taking our membership step by step along the journey. It is evident that the IFP's rank and file are comfortable with our transition and have embraced the leaders who will take the IFP into its next chapter. Despite the party's improved performance, it registered its concern about low voter turnout in some of its support bases. Despite the party's improved performance, it registered its concern about low voter turnout in some of its support base areas, including Nongoma in northern KwaZulu-Natal. IFP Secretary General Verinkosini Tlabisa explains. We will be doing a thorough analysis of the results per municipality and per ward so that we could see the areas that we need to zoom in immediately and discover what has been the cause of a low turnout in areas which are our strong base. Meanwhile, Butelezi has refuted reports that he wants to continue at the helm of the party after the election, saying he will step down as party leader during the IFP's national conference in July. Butelezi is, however, expected to be among party members who will be sworn in as members of parliament next week. I'm Vosima Kosini in Durban. Join world-renowned Harvard economist and corporate strategist Mark Kramer and other exciting speakers in Nairobi, Kenya at the Africa Shared Value Summit from 23 to 24 May 2019. Hear how business thought leaders and changemakers have transformed their organizations through profit with purpose. Book your ticket at africashadevaluesummit.com today. Channel Africa is a proud media partner of Africa Shared Value Summit and will be broadcasting live from the summit. Make sure you don't miss out on the broadcasts on the 23rd and the 24th of May 2019. Log on to www.channelafrica.co.za or Southern Africa DSTV 802 to listen. Channel Africa from an African perspective. South Africa's Chief Justice Mokhweng Mokhweng will tomorrow officially receive the list of designated members of parliament and the provincial legislatures from the Independent Electoral Commission's chairperson Voma Mashinini. The Chief Justice will also announce the dates of the first sittings of the National Council of Provinces and the National Assembly. This is according to the spokesperson of the Office of the Chief Justice, Nati Mube. Mercedes Percent reports. After receiving the list of candidates for Parliament, Mokhweng Mokhweng will hand it over to the Acting Secretary to Parliament, Baby Kiawa. The Chief Justice's office says Mokhweng will also hand the lists of designated members of the provincial legislatures to the judges president who have been designated by the Chief Justice to preside over the first sittings of the provincial legislatures. Mube elaborates. On Wednesday, the 15th of May 2019, at about 2 o'clock at Constitutional Court of South Africa in Bramfontein, the IEC chairperson will hand over the list of the candidates that have been elected to 
the in parliament and also the list of the those uh, candidates that have been elected to be in the legislature and today's name list will be handed over by the chairperson of the IEC to the Chief Justice of the Republic of South Africa, Chief Justice Mukweng Mukweng, and he will then from there determine the first sitting of the two houses, which is the National, National Assembly and NCOP. Meanwhile, the Secretary to the National Assembly, Masibule Letkaso, says as soon as the list for designated MPs has been handed over to Parliament, they will start the process of preparing members. That enables us to contact the members, to make arrangements for the members to come to Parliament, to interact with them on a range of issues. Some members will take the oath, others will uh, do affirmations. We need to clarify those things beforehand, but you can only do that once you know who is coming to Parliament. The provisional date set for the swearing-in of the National Assembly MPs are the 22nd of May and the 23rd of May for permanent delegates of the NCOP. However, the Chief Justice is either expected to confirm these dates or announce his own dates after the lists have been received and handed over to the national and provincial legislatures on Wednesday. That report by Mercedes Percent in Cape Town. Three parties in South Africa are expected to join the Western Cape Provincial Legislature after managing to win a seat each in the provincial elections. They are the Freedom Front Plus, Good Party and Al-Jamaa. Their leaders say they will focus on delivering their election promises to voters. Chris Mabuya has more. The parties are among a group of 34 which contested the elections in the Western Cape. The Good Party was formed last year by former Cape Town Mayor Patricia DeLille after she resigned from the DA. The leadership of the Good Party will meet later this week to plan the way forward after getting two seats in the National Assembly and one in the Western Cape Legislature. DeLille says she's pleased with her party's performance. Considering that we started just four months before the election, we are very happy and we're humbled by the votes and seats that we have received. We will certainly use this as a basis to start preparing for the 2021 local government elections and, of course, go to Parliament with a mandate uh, to represent the voters uh, that have put their faith in us. It's seen as a political comeback for the premier candidate of the Freedom Front Plus, Peter Mare. He previously served as mayor and premier in the province under the DA rule. The veteran politician says he's delighted about his party's achievements in the national and provincial elections. The Freedom Front Plus is now the fifth largest party in the National Assembly after getting 412,000 votes. It also received one seat in the Western Cape Parliament. Marais says he's ready to serve. Now the real hard work starts. I will endeavor not only to fight the ANC or the DA because I'm a different party, but to help on issues of more powerful provinces, protection of minorities, stability at our schools, better housing for our people. These are issues we can find consensus on. The political party Al-Jamaa will also be represented for the first time in both National Parliament and the Western Cape Legislature. The party received just below 18,000 votes in the province and nearly 32,000 votes nationally. Party President Hanif Hendricks will soon be vacating his post as councillor in the Cape Town City Council to join the National Parliament. A member of the party's ethics committee, Isaac de Jager, will be heading to the provincial legislature. Hendricks says the process of replacing him in council will only begin once he has been sworn in as MP. I've been redeployed to Parliament uh, because some of the issues that our party's manifesto is based on, I'm an expert in those fields and they want me now to take it further. Then my position becomes vacant. That will be settled only after the IEC has put the MPL in place and the member of parliament in place. The new parties in the provincial legislature say they hope to improve the lives of citizens. I'm Chris Maboya in Cape Town. 
Sipom Selegu of Sakumnoto has accused Lawrence Mulawuzi of Kilimanjaro Capital of lying under oath before the South African Commission of Inquiry into allegations of impropriety at the Public Investment Commission, the PIC. Mulawuzi earlier told the commission that Sakumnoto was imposed on Kilimanjaro Capital as a partner by the PIC in a transaction to buy black economic empowerment shareholding in total South Africa. Mselegu says this is false and defamatory. Tsepomungwai reports. Mseleku says it's unclear why Mulawuzi would say Sakumnoto was imposed on Kilimanjaro. In March, Mlauzi described the commission as devastating and painful the move by the PIC to impose the company as a partner on the deal. Mseleku says he suggested to Mlauzi that they should match their campaigns to acquire the shares as they stood better chance together as there could be only one winner. He says he met Mlauzi for the first time at the PIC offices where he had gone to meet former CEO Dr. Dan Majila. He added that he followed Machila into his meeting with Mulauzi, which ended in them discussing the partnership. As a businessman, when you say, it's, let's put our forces together, we've done that in many transactions, this is not the first one, and, 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 um, and, uh, and both benefit rather than keep on fighting each other and and there's one who loses and there's one who wins. Mulaudzi told the commission that when he inquired if Sakum Noto had undergone a full due diligence like Kilimanjaro, but an answer from Machila was not forthcoming. Mseluki says they underwent confirmatory due diligence. The commission also heard from Sandy Sibia, PIC's former human resources finance officer. Sibia says during his time at PIC, he was charged for disclosing information to a colleague. He says this after he received instruction from the CFO Matsepo More telling him to reduce the performance score of an employee but was told to keep this a secret. So even the manager where the employee is reporting, she was not supposed to know about uh, the, uh, this adjustment. Number two, so the process uh, was that from moderation, uh, Chris Nastredom and uh, Nadia to bring will and and or how hello will forward me the changes that i have to make on the balance uh, card register the email sent to me by cfo was outside of the process and i don't think it was deliberated in a moderation committee because it came it came straight to me and i was told not to ever disclose this information but obviously at the end the manager knew about the adjustment CBS says following the restructuring of the organogram, he was transferred from HR to finance but remained without any role for 22 months until, his, until he decided to resign. Tsepo SABC News, Johannesburg. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. Today in 1948, according to the current era calendar, the independent state of Israel was proclaimed in Tel Aviv by David Ben-Gurion, who became its first prime minister. U.S. President Harry S. Truman immediately recognized the new nation. That's history, 1948. Tamil superstar Kamal Hassan has kicked up a storm after he labeled Mahatma Gandhi's assassin as Free India's first Hindu terrorist. The ruling BJP party wants the actor to be sent to prison, even as the group defended a Hindu priest who is running for office, although she is charged with acts of terrorism. Rana Sen reports. Rabid Hindu activist Nathuram Godse shot dead Mahatma Gandhi in 1948. 
yet india's election commission will decide today should it punish the actor politician for speaking the truth narayan tirupati is bjp party's spokesman very clearly shows for want of minority votes he has demeaned and defamed hinduism and kamalahasan should apologize for this not only that the government and also the election commission should arrest kamalahasan and put him before the court of law and see to it that he is properly punished for creating enmity between two religions the bjp has left no stones unturned to turn hindus against muslims in india's ongoing elections said kamal hasan's party spokesman r rangarajan the people who are pouncing on our leader for making this statement are those people defending nathuram godse and his act he said i am not saying this because i am appealing to the muslim voters here it was not meant to polarize the voters the implication of that statement was don't talk by the name of islamic terror or islamic extremism and all that don't stereotype people based on religion just because nathuram godse who happened to be a hindu killed mahatma gandhi doesn't mean that there is every hindu can be called a terrorist in recent years statues of godse have popped up in parts of the country yet diplomat turned politician pavan verma seemed painfully unaware of the growing disrespect for gandhi terrorism has no caste color or creed or region so i am against the labeling of terror the further qualification of terror into hindu muslim or otherwise terror feeling is we should all cooperate them to increase this quality of politics that is the need of the country indian prime minister narendra modi is accused of leading the divisive campaign it is perhaps of his action the politician has earned the dubious sobriquet of being india's divider in chief for news break this is rana sen reporting from new delhi our headlines up next with nosile zuma Thank you Lolo good morning violence flared up in Sudan's capital Khartoum after the military council and opposition groups said they had agreed to a power structure for the country's transition following the ejection of president Omar al-Bashir last last month South Africa's ruling ANC has announced seven of its eight premiers following last week's national and provincial elections and a Chinese cargo plane has landed in Venezuela's capital Caracas with 71 tons of medicines and hospital equipment Catch a full bulletin with N Musa at nine. A new study has found that South African doctors are overprescribing antibiotics contributing to resistance and making infections such as colds and bronchitis much more difficult to treat. The research conducted by the country's University of the Witwatersrand and the London School of Economics found that 78% of patients sent to a public clinic and 67% sent to a private general practitioner received antibiotics even though they were not necessary. More from Vanessa Hassan Chow, a health and wellness expert in South Africa. So what they're finding is that South Africans have got the highest rate of ABR, which is antibiotic resistance. A lot of people who go to doctors for respiratory issues, bronchitis, or anything else, they get prescribed antibiotics. The study is showing that perhaps doctors in South Africa are actually over-prescribing antibiotics. And I think the key focus, you know, antibiotics definitely have a place. You know, if you've got an infection and that's what you need. In many cases antibiotics are given to people that actually it's not necessary to give and the biggest thing in my view is that people need to actually enhance their own immunity so we need to focus on almost preventative medicine where you actually start focusing on how do you make your body strong enough your immune system strong enough to actually deal with all the things that do happen to people and you know especially young children if you overprescribe antibiotics as a child it completely affects your gut microbe your your bacteria in your gut which 70 to 80% of your immune system is actually in your gut Vanessa why is antibiotic resistance a problem in South Africa also is this a new problem you know i don't think it's new i don't think it's you know unnecessarily prescribed antibiotics unnecessarily 
is what actually leads to antibiotic resistance. So this obviously poses a huge threat on a public health level, and just common infections that would be so easily treatable are now more difficult to treat. So the study that was performed by this university and the London School of Economics found that 78% of patients sent to a public clinic and 67% sent to a private general practitioner received antibiotics even though they weren't necessary. So what's happening is either people feel like they need to get something from the doctor and the doctor feels they need to prescribe something. People don't, you know, you go to a doctor and you walk out with nothing or it's quite a difficult to deal with. What's quite alarming is that the study noted that South Africa has amongst the highest rate of antibiotic resistance in the world. So what is actually happening? We're over-prescribing antibiotics. We can't blame anyone. We all have to take responsibility for our state of health. So I think what our key focus is, is we should start finding ways to boost our own immune systems and to make our bodies more robust to any form of attack that we do get. Now, let's talk about the side effects of antibiotics when it comes to our gut. And is there a way that we can protect our gut if we have to take antibiotics? Okay, so the key focus is, you know, if you are taking antibiotics, it definitely affects your gut. So as I mentioned, 70 to 80% of your immune system is in your gut. Now, what we're finding is that by over-prescribing antibiotics, we're becoming less able to deal with just normal infection. So we're almost becoming deaf to the antibiotics, which means that our immune system is very, very compromised. So what's usually recommended is if you need to take antibiotics, once you finish your antibiotics, and sometimes even during, you should take a prebiotic to re-attack your gut flora, so you know, re-establish your gut flora. But a lot of the research shows that from taking antibiotics, you actually never re-establish your gut flora. So you become weaker and weaker and weaker and less prone to, you know, the antibiotics. The antibiotics actually stop working and then it's your, your own immune system becomes compromised. So one of the big things that people have always recommended is that after antibiotics, take probiotics. But what a lot of the research is showing that actually that's not enough. Recommendation would be only take antibiotics if absolutely necessary. Every single day, you should be taking a prebiotic anyway, so you need to be able to strengthen your gut flora. Everybody should be having fermented foods like your kimchi, your sauerkraut, you know, good quality yogurt. Have a very probiotic, you know, different foods to choose from, plus a probiotic supplement is really important. We are often told that antibiotics don't work against infections caused by viruses such as colds and flu. What then do you recommend we do to naturally boost our immunity and help against colds and flu this winter? Vitamin D supplementation, DLAT, oral vitamin C, a liposomal vitamin C which is proven to increase the viability of vitamin C in the body is very, very important. Obviously food because food is so powerful, you know, your food is your foundation so no sugar, no processed foods, no a lot of refined, you know, packaged foods, just whole quality plant-based nutrition. How we manage our stress is very important. And then, you know, in the morning, you can have hot water and lemon and ginger is very good. You can have ginger water throughout the day is very, very, very powerful as well. And making sure you sleep well and exercise. Complete, basic, you know, lifestyle factors are really important. It doesn't have to be complicated. And I think it's just a matter of investing in our health and understanding that we have the ability within our bodies to really protect ourselves from, you know, infections and viruses by simply boosting our immune system through vitamin C, DLAC, preventing things that from the body by weakening our immune system. So eating correctly is very important, sleeping, exercise, all of that. That's Vanessa Asenchawa, health and wellness expert in South Africa, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. An estimated 2.2 million people in Somalia are in urgent need of food following below-average rains in the country. Aid agencies say the humanitarian situation has deteriorated at an alarming rate with widespread crop failure and a decline in livestock productivity. Most of those affected are internally displaced persons, Sarah Kimani reports. 
Aid agencies working in Somalia warn that the country is enduring its third driest long-rain season since March 1981. Millions are faced with starvation as the humanitarian situation continues to deteriorate. Rola Jepson Lay is the deputy country director, Save the Children Somalia. As a result, around half the population of Somalia are food insecure. Of those, around 1.7 million are acutely food insecure and in need of urgent humanitarian assistance. We're seeing increasingly, uh, rate, um, rapidly increasing malnutrition rates among children under five, and it's estimated around 1.2 million children will be uh, malnourished throughout 2019. At the beginning of the year, the United Nations made a humanitarian appeal for Somalia of $1.2 billion. The response has been slow. It is only 19% funded, and now aid agencies say urgent funding is needed to avert a humanitarian disaster. Um, our call right now is we, as an international organization, as many organizations here, are ready and willing to scale up our response. But we can't do that without funding. So we're really calling on all our different donors across the globe to mobilize the resources needed to enable us to do that large-scale response that's needed. But if the funding doesn't come, the response doesn't come, and we will see loss of lives. International Charities Save the Children says it has begun tracking water and providing cash vouchers to those affected. But more will be needed because the situation is expected to extend beyond Somalia. Sarah Kimani, SABC News, Kenya. Going back in time to today in 1955, representatives from eight communist bloc countries, including the Soviet Union, signed the Warsaw Pact in Poland. Today in history, 1955. Analysts are expecting a marginal increase in the unemployment rate as Statistics South Africa gears up to release the employment numbers for the first quarter of 2019. South Africa's official unemployment rate was recorded at 27.1% in the fourth quarter of 2018. Naledi Noble reports. SSA prepares to release the results of the quarterly labor force survey for the first quarter of 2019. Economists are forecasting a 0.3 percentage point increase in the country's unemployment to 27.4%. They've attributed their expectations on the low growth environment and losses of temporary jobs as a result of the ending December holidays. Economist at Economatrix Laura Campbell explains. Uh, Seasonally in the first quarter of every year, we um, tend to see a substantial decline in employment. Uh, This is because temporary workers who were taken on in the fourth quarter of the preceding year in sectors such as retail and tourism to take account of the additional Christmas shopping and holiday season activity tend to leave the market once the season is over. So in line with this seasonal trend, we're expecting that um, there will have been net job losses in the first quarter of 2019. An economist at NKC Economists, Elise Kruger, says a slight increase in the unemployment rate can be expected due to low economic growth, which was exacerbated by the impact of load shedding earlier this year. We expect that the unemployment rate will tick up in quarter one 2019 to about 27.4% compared to 27.1% in the fourth quarter of last year. The reason being that we've had a very weak economic quarter in quarter one. We actually uh, expect that the economy would have contracted by 1.5% given the impact of load shedding on both the mining and manufacturing sectors. Kruger says the newly elected government will need to put in more effort in creating stable policies that attract greater investment which can boost employment. This low level of growth, you know, it's very hard to see how companies would uh, employ more people. We will have to see more investment and a more growth-driven policy from, from the government side to spur the economy to a point where we can uh, start to expect to see more job opportunities. Stats SA is expected to release the quarterly labor force survey in Pretoria on Tuesday, the 14th of May. I'm Naledi Ngobo in Johannesburg. Channel Africa. Africa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean Noel Bamwisi, Channel Africa. 
Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. economics update up next with Tracy Boomgaard. Thank you, Lulu. Zimbabweans have been hit with rolling power cuts across the country. Power Utilities ESA has, however, denied reintroducing load shedding. Residents say they now go over 12 hours a day without electricity on a regular basis, while others have described electricity as a rare commodity. This as Zimbabwe grapples with acute fuel, food and medicine shortages. Big Business says it expects South African President Cyril Ramaphosa to put together a cabinet equipped with the ability to implement business-friendly policies. South Africa is struggling to grow its economy beyond 1% and to create jobs. Experts say the biggest and most urgent on Ramaphosa's to-do list is how he will turn around the economy. President of the Black Business Council, Hanki Matabani, says the immediate priority should be to stabilize the state-owned enterprises. Especially ESCOM, stabilize it, uh, also stabilize the economy. Uh, as you, you are aware, the economy is not creating jobs. Uh, unemployment is still uh, at, at its highest, and inequality is also still high. So it's to attend to those uh, macro issues. The Cape Town Convention Centre in South Africa is expected to be a hub of activity when leaders in the fields of electricity, energy and water gather there this morning for the 19th African Utility Week and PowerGen Africa Conference and Exhibition. The event, which takes place over three days, is expected to host over 10,000 experts. Mlamli Maneli reports. The event is regarded as a perfect platform to look at global trends on mitigating impact of water shortages and inadequate electricity provision. Senior Communications Manager of African Utility Week and PowerGen Africa, Animari Roadball, says the conference will add an expanded focus on generation of electricity, including renewable energies, off-grid, fossil fuels and nuclear, while still concentrating on transmission, distribution, metering, new technologies and storage. The Egyptian government is struggling to raise funds for the nation's new capital after investors pulled out of the 58 billion US dollars project. The project launched in 2015 by President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi aims to offer a clean and efficient base for the government and finance industry. The project also aims to lift an ailing economy following the political turmoil the country faced in 2011. About 20% of investment so far has come from abroad, including up to $4.5 billion from China. China says it will impose steeper tariffs on $60 billion U.S. billion worth of imports from the United States on June the 1st. It's the latest escalation in a bitter trade war between the world's two largest economies, after the Trump administration significantly increased tariffs on Chinese goods on Friday last week. The BBC's Michelle Fleury reports. Now we find ourselves in a situation where tariffs are going up on both sides. What's worth pointing out, though, is there is a bit of a time lag. So the Chinese tariffs don't go into effect till June 1st, and the tariffs that the U.S. introduced last week, there is an exemption for goods that are already on the way. So it'll be a couple of weeks before it starts to bite. Speculation was that this might give the two sides time to maybe still wrap up a deal, but hopes seem to be fading. And, of course, we're waiting to hear more from the U.S. on further tariffs. 
The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.12 Nigerian Naira, 10.52 Botswana Pula, at 99.78 Kenyan Shilling, and at 12.95 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.97 Brazilian Hale, 65.33 Russian Ruble, 70.43 Indian Rupee, 6.90 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.28 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,299 and platinum at $860 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $69.94 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Our sports update up next with Figle Lingwati. In our sports update, we're betting off with cricket news. The Proteas women captain Sunei Luz left a free scoring 80 and Masavata class claimed three wickets, but it was not enough. As Pakistan managed to tie the decisive third ICC Women's Championship IWC One Day International against the Proteas in Benoni, east of Johannesburg, meaning the series is drawn at Wilmore Park. The host managed to pile on a strong 265 for six after being put into bed first. But the Tories responded with a 265 for nine, thanks to a plucky career best by Alia Riaz. The teams move on to their five-match T20 International Series, starting at Ashopol Tax Oval in Pretoria on Wednesday. In boxing news, Tyson Fury says he is aiming to become the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world within a year. The self-titled Gypsy King returns to action next month against the unbeaten German Tom Schwartz, but has set his sights on a fight with current heavyweight champion Anthony Joshua in the next year and a rematch against American Dionete Wilder, with whom he fought out a thrilling draw in Los Angeles in December 2018. Right, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that Vladimir Klitschko was the undisputed king of the heavyweight division, correct? Is everyone in agreement? And when I kicked his ass on that night, I became the best fighter in the heavyweight division. Number uno, number one. Barring nobody, there was no number two, three or four. Vladimir was known as the undisputed heavyweight king because he couldn't fight his own brother. So when I beat him, I became that. And you know what? It didn't even change me one bit. Not one bit. So I'll answer that question. When that does happen next year, because it will, because they can't beat me, I'll still be the same person as I am today. Because real people don't change. We just stay the same. Wilder faces fellow American Dominic Brizzle on the 18th of May, while WBA, IBF and WBO champion Anthony Joshua takes on American Eddie Ruiz Jr. in New York on the 1st of June. Fury is unbeaten in his 28 fights, while 24-year-old Schwartz ranked number two in the world with uh, the WBO has 24 wins from 24 bouts. Do you know, they're both great fights. They'll both be good fights for the fans. But, you know, either or really doesn't matter to me. I already beat Deontay Wilder in his own country. Um, didn't get the decision, but we're not going to cry about that. So, you know... Whoever, doesn't really matter. However, whenever, I said I'll fight them seven days a week, twice on a Sunday. It's really unimportant to me because they're only men with boxing gloves on and I'll beat both of them 
time and time again. If we fought 10 times, I'd win 10 times out of 10. So all we need to do is stop messing around and get the fights on. And finally, tennis news, Italian Fabio Fonini said he was hoping to do something big at home as he beat Francis Joe with Fetsonga 6-3, 6-4 to advance to second round of the Italian Open in Rome last night. Tenth seed Fonini, who became the first Italian to triumph at Monte Carlo in 51 years last month, reached the quarterfinals in Rome last year before falling to champion Rafael Nadal in three sets. Tsonga now ranked 92nd, missed March 4, 2018 after knee surgery. The Frenchman had won four. Of the past five meetings, but was broken in each set, with Fonini saving five of the six break points. Fonini will next play either Moldovan Radu Albert, who beat him at Italian Indian Wells, a French qualifier, Benoit Bayer. That's the sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Malawi prepares for general elections to be held next week. And leaders of South Africa's main opposition party meet to discuss election performance. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabouf, producers Pumutsura Magaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za is Mungu Africa with a song titled Lazaro.
Jesus.